0: to this week's edition of novak now here on the nachem siegel network i'm jake novak and again you can follow me on my twitter feed at jake jake ny for a number of really good stories especially stories coming out of israel uh that you can always uh, capture and and find if you're following my twitter feed at jake jake ny at jake jake ny that is my twitter handle Uh, Of course, I have a Facebook page, just do Jake Novak, N-O-V-A-K, and I have a LinkedIn page, also Jake Novak is the way to find it, just typing in the name, but Twitter is the easiest way to keep in touch, keep following uh, everything I'm doing on a a much quicker basis. Um, You know, obviously there's a couple of big stories in the Jewish world this week coming together uh, relatively at the same time. We have on Tuesday the Israeli elections are trying for the fourth time in just the last couple of years to get a more stable government, to get a government that can withstand relatively strong challenges. Uh, It's been very, very difficult. You have a very polarized Israeli society. I don't think it's polarized anymore along the lines of political ideology. I think it's polarized along the lines of those who support more time in office for Prime Minister Netanyahu and those who do not. Uh, I'm not going to make any partisan statements about that uh, any further than that. I, I, I don't think that that was too partisan a statement to make. I think it's a realistic statement. Um, but again, I, I think uh, it'll be very interesting to see if there's any change in what seems to be an equally strong side for, for both here. I think there's equally strong strength, equal, equal strength going for the pro-Netanyahu forces and for the anti-Netanyahu forces and all those folks who are stuck in the middle who could go either way. Um, there just hasn't been a successful effort by either side really to grab a strong enough portion of that swing part of the, of the population to get a government that has any stability, any, any long-term stability right now. Now, that doesn't mean that the state of Israel and the government of Israel for, the, for the, the execution of policies isn't stable. I don't mean that it's that in that way, but one that can withstand the partisan political atmosphere in the country right now. So that's one big story going on this week. And, of course, we have the other big story, which is it's time for Passover. Passover begins Saturday night with the first Seder. And, uh, of course, it's one of those, for those of you who are more observant, who are listening, of course, this is a difficult, a uh, little bit of a difficult game to play with uh, Pesach because it comes right after Shabbat. So you have to basically start uh, your restriction of eating leavened food. In Hebrew, as we say chametz. You have to stop with all of that starting on Friday night and, and for some people Thursday. Really, it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's, you get an extended amount of time without bread and bread products. Um, But, you know, it happens every few years, and uh, I'm sure we'll all pull through, those of us who are observing it more strictly. Um, But instead of talking directly about the elections, and instead of discussing Pesach directly, I want to talk about something that I think is affecting both the United States and the state of Israel, and probably a lot of other countries as well. But of course, we're, those of us listening to Novak now, and those of us who are listeners on the Nachum Siegel Network were probably most interested in the goings on in those two countries, the United States and Israel. And I think that there's something going on in both of those countries that really needs to be discussed. Um, And I'm going to try my best to keep partisanship out of it. I don't really think, again, that that what I'm about to say and the issue I'm about to say is really partisan at all. I think that most Americans would agree, even very extreme liberals, even very extreme conservatives and a lot of people in between, and I think the same would be true in Israel as well. And it's not really meant to bash either country or to really boost other country, it's just to discuss what I think is a challenge. And as you know, I what I must always try to do here on Novak Now is when I discuss challenges and things, I like to posit a few possible solutions. It's very important. So I think what I'd like to say is what I, what I think is happening in both countries, let's start with the United States, is We do not seem to have a strong pipeline for political leadership in the United States. We are not in a place like we were maybe 40, 50 years ago, where we saw a lot of young people running for office, um, many of them with very different ideas. They weren't cookie cutter. I mean, you could hardly say that, for example, John F. Kennedy and Hubert Humphrey... Uh, Had the same kind of uh, attitude and and really were very much the same. I don't think that they, you know, I think a lot of people, if they don't really know their history very in a very specific way, will say, "Oh, well, they were both Democrats and they were both sort of liberal Democrats, right?" Well, no. (laughs) John F. Kennedy was someone who was very interested in a strong defense. He was fiercely anti-communist. It doesn't mean that he didn't have a lot in common with Hubert Humphrey when it came to certain social issues, but for Hubert Hubert Humphrey, the social issues, civil rights and things like that, were absolutely at the top of his agenda, where for John F. Kennedy, they were not the number one on his agenda. They weren't way down below his, (laughs) at the bottom of his agenda. But if you take a look at his presidency, if you take a look at his inaugural address, for example, you can see that... It's when he talks about specific stuff. It's really the anti-communist stuff that was really where he was working from, and uh, not not surprising. He was not surprisingly, folks. He was assassinated by a communist, by a communist sympathizer. Lee Harvey Oswald was a communist sympathizer. Something that even Jackie Kennedy noted in the hours after the assassination, and something that has been sort of lost in history. Uh, we can ascribe a lot of reasons for that, but that's but the the fact that that's been lost in history and is not part of the general. Discussion when people talk about John F. Kennedy is not there. Um, My point is that there were so many different people. I think starting after World War II, young people from both parties, but specifically the Democratic Party, uh, a very varied group of people, um, and they were for many many decades were this fantastic pipeline of candidates for higher office in the United States, whether it was for the Senate whether it was for certain governorships although it was mostly for the Senate and presidency. I think that really World War II and the years after those veterans from World War II really just, just a, a tremendous pipeline. It was like a factory for leadership. And it's not surprising. You had not only did you have a war that brought together almost all the young men in the country to, for national service, But you also had a war that was decided by the younger officers and the non-commissioned officers. If you read the books of Stephen Ambrose, which I can't recommend enough, and I will put some of them on my Twitter feed so you can find them yourself. One of them, of course, is the very famous D-Day, a lot of other books about World War II, but one of the themes that comes really, really clearly comes out really, really clearly in, in in many of those books is that World War II was won for the United States, yes, by the contributions of people of our great generals Eisenhower, MacArthur, and Patton, absolutely. But just as important were the was the initiative, the self starting, the problem solving without having to always check back with headquarters. That was done by our captains, lieutenants, and sergeants uh, in the United States Army, and those guys really won the war for us just as much as Eisenhower and Patton and all the and, and all the other and, and Marshall and all those great generals. And so, those are the people who were young enough at the end of World War II to. Take some time to get a law degree, or what else, they were or other things that we're going to do at, right after the war, and then get into politics. In the case of course John F. Kennedy, he went right into politics, but that's because he had a wealthy father who put him into in, into the, the business of running for office as soon as possible. In fact, when John F. Kennedy first ran for Congress in 1946, he was still quite gaunt and clearly suffering from his war injuries. I mean, let alone talk about someone who didn't have time to kind of do much else other than come home from war. That was really a case with John F. Kennedy. He not only had just come home from the war, but he wasn't even fully recovered from his famous injuries from the PT-109 incident. But anyway, we, we had that rape pipeline, and I think that there was a similar pipeline that came out of Vietnam War service, certainly not as big and as varied as the, uh, the World War II veterans. Um, But since then, I think that it's really fair to say, and I mean this in a completely nonpartisan way, I think it's fair to say that we've lost a pipeline for great and, and, and maybe not only just great leadership, but certainly varied leadership in America. I think today's young people are not only not going into politics, but they're not necessarily going into the professions that would lead them to a political career. And here's what I mean, to, mean by that. I think that we have, we had for a long time, there was a very obvious connection in the legal profession towards political activism and political leadership. And whereas there is still plenty of competition to get into law schools, the top law schools in this country, there's still plenty of lawyers being churned out uh, by by our, our system here in the United States. It's not really that hot profession that it was in the 80s and 90s, is it? I think that the the best and the brightest students out there are very much going into other professions, are very much looking to do tech, are very much looking to do something other than law. I think some of them are interested in medicine as they always were, but I think that there is other ways now. I think they might be getting into more biomedical research than actual practicing, being a practicing physician. I think we're seeing that happen. And... So I think that when it comes to the fact that the best and the brightest aren't necessarily the ones who are really interested in making huge change and being leaders aren't going into the legal profession, for example. I think that that's one of the reasons why they're not being ferried into politics after they have some initial success or catch the eyes of someone. I think that they're moving along in Silicon Valley or they're doing things like that and maybe even through Wall Street. But for all the very wealthy candidates we've seen emerge over the years and stuff like that, Wall Street Pure, just a pure financial career, working as hedge fund success, you know, let's say a successful hedge fund manager or another kind of Wall Street type top financial position. Uh, sure, some of them have, have decided they wanted to try to get into politics and run for office, but I don't think they do that with anything close to the uh, the percentages that we saw coming out of the legal profession. So I think that that's one reason why we we just don't see that pipeline. I mean, obviously we don't have. We haven't had a war a war like World War II, which forged in blood, sweat, and tears some really great leaders in this country. And even Vietnam, which was obviously a very difficult experience and not the kind of national unifying event that World War II was, even Vietnam created some people who were pretty good leaders. We have not had very most you know, quite notably, we have not had a Vietnam veteran. Serve as our president, despite the fact that, you know, at some point, millions of Americans, by the time things were all over, millions of Americans had served in Vietnam. If you take all the years of that war, which, of course, lasted a very long time, we had a small troop deployment there starting in 1959, it got much larger by 1965, but, you know, more than a couple million Americans served in Vietnam overall once the, when all was said and done. And yet, not one of those many people, and even though a lot of them ran for office, not one of them has been president of the United States. And it doesn't look like anyone ever will. A couple came close, and by close, I mean they got their party's nomination. You had John Kerry, you had John McCain, but it just didn't happen for, a, 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 you know, I think a, a number of different reasons. And probably not the least. The, the, you know, not the weakest reason is the fact that it was such a divisive war. For those of us who feel like the United States has never been more divided, and I'm almost in that camp myself, I think that uh, clearly the years of the Vietnam War were, were darn close to this. And much of the country still, you know, at least those who are old enough to remember it, much of the country still hasn't recovered from that rift that that war created. But again, still... At least that war did create a pipeline of a lot of senators, members of Congress, and some of whom uh, certainly served with, with great distinction. So, but we don't have that either now. Even, even something like that, which, is not, which didn't produce a president like the Vietnam War, we, have, we don't have that kind of shared experience that's creating political leaders anymore in the United States. And it's not all bad that that isn't true. It's certainly not all bad news that we haven't had wars. <laughs> we don't want to have wars. But where are we going to find these kind of, where, where do we find these kinds of young people who are going to make a difference or we're making differences? Well, obviously there's a lot of politics on campus. You could say that America's colleges should be some kind of petri dish for political leaders of the future. But to that I'd say, well, we've had that as a fact for quite a while and I don't really know if that's happening. And I think one of the reasons that we're seeing that is because so many of the political movements that have captured the attention of young people and captured the hearts or at least at some point the interest of young people for a long time, I'm not so sure that they're about a cause as much as they are about tribalism. And let me give you a couple of examples here. It's hard not to notice that, for example, let's say feminism, which has been a movement that's been existing on campus and on the streets of major cities since at least the early 1970s. So we're talking about something almost up to 50 years And feminism definitely is an ethos. Feminism is definitely a movement and a cause. But are the leaders of feminism, are the feminist organizations out there really about feminism all the time? Or are they about bashing a political side and boosting another? Have we not seen and I, and don't worry, I'll, I'll get on the right about this too. This isn't just about bashing left, left-wing organizations. But have we not seen so many feminist organizations who purport to be about women's rights, purport to be about pushing back on harassment and discrimination and all that kind of stuff, have we not seen them forgive certain Democrats in office or certain people who otherwise seem to support feminism or at least are on in, in a particular camp that seems more favorable to them, when they commit terrible crimes against feminist causes? Have we not seen that? Uh, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. Of course we have. And so the question becomes, are you really a feminist? Or are you a political tribalist? And I think that today's young people get involved in feminism, whether they're women or men, are getting involved in more of a political tribalism, which I don't think creates leaders. Political tribalism creates tribes, creates people, creates people who want to get involved with a group, with a groupthink-type mentality, and I don't think that they're leaders. Now I told you I'd say I'd get on the right about this as well. I'd say the same thing about, for example, the, the fiscal conservative movement out there, Those who, you know, and, and which was mostly uh, personified by the Tea Party 10 or 11 years ago. Now, were they really against spending or were they just against liberal Democrats? Because we didn't have any significant cut in spending under the Republican-controlled Congress and this last Republican presidential administration. We didn't. I'm just stating a fact here. This is not a a partisan argument I'm trying to make. But the question is, were they really about really stopping... Or putting some kind of a, a stop, yeah, a hold on spending, or were they just about attacking the other side? Now here's the problem with that. Now that's nothing new. Some of you might be listening, and say, "Hey, it's nothing new, Jake. There's always been this kind of partisanship." How you know? What's the issue here? The issue here is that when you create tribalist movements that aren't really about the advertised cause, it's harder to move up through the ranks, right? If it's really just about bashing to the other side, then who needs new blood? You need uh, people to kind of be on your side, but you don't need new blood. You just need replacement blood. (laughs) You need people to kind of join and, 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 and keep the shouting going. But you don't need a new leader. There's no new ethos to really push because there isn't an ethos. It's just get the other guys. And I think that's really something that's a major turnoff to those people, men and women, who would like to be leaders in the future or in a present society. I think people who really want to be leaders are not going to be wasting their time just joining one side of a, of a partisan culture war here in this country. What's the point of that? Where do, what do they get from that? So I think a lot of young people, when they're in college, and if they want to be leaders, they're going to go into something where they can be a leader. So they're going to want to start a business, which of course I think is the biggest and most powerful magnet for our future leaders, and probably will be for a long time. Or they look to create something different that may not be along the lines of a business, but they might want to create a new technology, and they may not even be thinking of it as a money maker in the beginning. For example, like the, you know, the folks who started Napster uh, weren't thinking about money in the beginning, but they were creating a new technology and a, a, new, a new idea. And new ideas is where, are, are, are something that really does come from leaders. I think that it's an essential ingredient to be a leader, is to have some kind of new idea. And I think that that's, um, that's something that uh, you don't get if you're just going to join some kind of political tribalist movement. You know, Another example is environmentalism. Environmentalism is absolutely an ethos. Environmentalism is absolutely a philosophy. You can agree with it or disagree with it. But when you only decide to bash one group that's polluting, when you only look at it at one side, when you're willing to look the other way when certain countries, I mean, it's the same earth. It's it's very silly to say, well, we're only gonna look at one country that's polluting and not another. It doesn't matter who's doing it, it's still pollution, right? And I think that smarter people, no matter how young young they, they may be, see this from a mile away. They see that it's not really about the cause they see that it's about advancing a personality. They see that it's about attacking another side and boosting a tribe, but not necessarily a belief in anything. And I think that that turns people who want to make a difference, those kinds of people off. And so we're seeing some people coming out of the entrepreneurial ranks who want to run for office. Andrew Yang is a great example. And I don't know if he's the best guy to be a candidate or the worst guy to be a candidate. And I don't know if he'd be a great political leader. But boy, the the one thing that I think everyone can agree on when you talk about Andrew Yang is that I think there's one word that comes to everyone's mind, and that is refreshing. It's it's great to have someone who's not just the same old same old running for office. And we want more of that. Now, Andrew Yang may not be the right guy, and he also might just maybe he's the, the the result of the greatest marketing campaign ever because he just comes off. More benign than most candidates out there. But I don't think that's the case. I I think that his issue is that he may not exactly have the best policies, but I think his motivations are good. And clearly he wants to make a difference, and he wants to not be part of the same old argument. And that's important. That's really important. Getting someone who doesn't want to be a part of the same old argument, who doesn't want to join in the fights, whether they're on Twitter or whether on a debate, all that kind of stuff. You know, we've seen candidates, and by the way, this has nothing to do with age. We've got some young candidates who not, who I will not name, but young, young candidates, young people who have recently been elected to Congress, who join right in the nasty sniping on Twitter and on on Instagram. And when they do interviews, it's they might as well be just as old as Nancy Pelosi or you know, Donald Trump or any one of the older candidates who were in their 70s and 80s. It doesn't matter. And it's so sad to see that. You know, it used to be a young candidate meant new ideas at the very least. And maybe some of those ideas were, 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 were lousy. <laughs> but at least they were new. But when you see the youngest candidates, the youngest elected officials in our country saying the same things as the oldest ones, it's, so, it's sad. I think it's depressing. I really do. And again, not a partisan statement. I'm just stating a fact here. And I think that that, that's a a fact that a lot of people would agree with. So what's another solution? Well, you've heard me talk on Novak Now about national service. You've heard me talk about the draft on more than one occasion on this program. And you know that I've very begrudgingly come down on the side of agreeing that the elimination of the military draft in this country was generally a, a positive. But there were so many strong negatives that go into that equation that it's just barely a positive. We had... So many young people who got a purpose in life, who got straightened out in life by being a part of the military. A lot of people got messed up in the military too. I understand that, especially those who were killed or maimed in a war. I'm not talking about that. But the idea that people had to go into, uh, do some service for their country, meet some people who were from parts of the country that weren't the same as them, all that kind of stuff. The fact that we don't have a, a, a national military draft, I think one of the other negatives is that I think it's, it's contributed to this dearth of young candidates who who are a pipeline you know who, who are who could be part of a pipeline towards better you know t- towards better political representation. Of course, not all national service has to be military, and I think that if we ever got back to if we ever really sort of were, were willing re- you know willing to reconsider what, for example, President Clinton in his first Term was trying to do with AmeriCorps or other people who include Republicans. This isn't wasn't just a you know an idea of his to create some kind of national service option that is that goes beyond just the military. You know maybe we would be able to restore that in Israel. Obviously, they still have that, and you could argue well that hasn't really created a tremendous pipeline of candidates. Also, but I think that's because it's worked too well. You've had so much financial and technological success that runs through the national service and the Israeli military that young people are going right into that instead of joining some kind of political movement or party or that kind of thing. Um, But I think in the United States, we would get something like that. We would would have a new pipeline of wiser and newer thinking candidates if we could reestablish some kind of a draft, some kind of National Service draft. And uh, do I think that that would ever pass Congress or there would ever be someone who could really win that kind of an election with that idea? I don't know. I happen to believe that young people in America want to have a purpose in life more than, more than being told, oh, now you don't have to go to the military, you don't have to do this. I think that obligation is not necessarily a millstone around the neck of young people. I think it gives people, you know, to tell them they have a purpose and they're needed for something isn't so bad. Um, so I wonder, I often wonder if maybe the people who are supporting Bernie Sanders, for example, and they, they say they're in favor of socialism, is it socialism they want or is it some kind of purpose or sacrifice that they're willing to make for a better country? And I wonder if, if, you, if we gave young people an option other than socialism, if they would be even more turned on to that kind of an option. I You know, my, my opinion is yes. But I, I understand that not everyone would agree with that. But in both here and, you know, just to sum up, in both the United States and in Israel, it does feel like the pipeline of outstanding young candidates with real new ideas, with something to say besides joining the tribal partisan battles in this country and just being, adding another voice, but saying the same thing. It does feel like we're, we're missing that in both countries. And we'd like to find a way to end this problem. We'd like to find a way to reestablish a pipeline of outstanding young people who will rise above where we are right now, politically all over the world and all over. I think every democratic country is dealing with this right now to some extent and you can't get new ideas until you really forge adulthood and responsibility out of young people. And I don't think we're asking that of our young people here in the United States, particularly uh, particularly in our universities. I don't think we're asking them to think in a new way. I think we're asking them to think in the way that the professors and the administration want them to think. And in Israel, I think that there is another issue, which actually is more of a... Byproduct of their success, they've been so successful in creating innovative people who come out of the military that they're not interested necessarily in getting into, involved in a political partisan world. They, they'd much rather start a business or use that expertise for something else besides running for office. And maybe in that case, it's, it's not so much the youth that need to be given a new thing to do. It's the older folks need to be able to find a way to attract them after they finish their military service. That's what I would say is the issue in Israel. But either way, let's just hope for better things in our political arenas in both the United States and Israel from now on. <laughs> I certainly think that that's a prayer we can make. I'm Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now and the Achim Siedel Network. I hope you have a wonderful week.